Hi there and welcome to The Brave, a podcast all about resilience and dealing with the challenges and complexity of life in the 21st century. Episode to episode, we uncover what it takes to be adaptable and robust in this age of constant change and upheaval. I'm your host, Beth and Vincent, and you can find out more about the podcast at bethandvincent.com. You can also follow us on social media at The Brave Listen on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Now this week, we're taking a slightly different dive off the proverbial podcast diving board and going into the subject of resilience in messages and the endurance of messages. And I've actually got Des Clark, who is both my fiancé, good friend and just a generally knowledgeable man, interesting man. Hi Des, how are you doing? Hi, it's worth saying I also edit this podcast which Bethan always neglects to mention, so... He yeah. does, he does also do that uh, credit where credit's due. But this episode was all prompted by the fact Des and I were having a conversation one evening in bed about designing messages for the future and how could you design a message that was going to be understood by someone 50,000 years in the future or 100,000 years in the future. And then we were talking about we have messages from 50,000 years ago in the past, so cave paintings, and we often kind of interpret them to mean certain things, so people kind of attach, you know, this is a picture of a bison, it has symbolic spiritual meaning, you know, people doing the uh, blow paint around their hands and leaving the handprint, is that almost them leaving a kind of message to the future? Did it have a meaning or was it just people were bored and were drawing in a cave? And I guess that's what we want to talk about today is how would you design a message for the future? What are the messages that are going to endure and be resilient? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because when you think about those cave paintings, they're so evocative because they're so clearly the work of like human intention. But it's so difficult to try and understand what the intention behind them actually is. Like with the handprints, like it's such a close, tangible link to another person. But like you don't know anything about that person aside from that they were a person. And I, it's quite funny because I was thinking, you know, I, when I'm on a call, I will doodle on my notepad while I'm on that call. And if someone in the future found my doodles, you know, they might be like, oh, she's drawn a whale sitting on a chair during a massive spout. That obviously was like part of this mythical whale culture. And they mm. revered the whale. And really it was just me having a doodle and you know are we kind of almost imprinting our own 21st century feelings about what art should mean about what pictures mean from the past and almost kind of making things fit that as opposed to thinking about the cultures and how they actually were but okay to come on to the topic of why you would want to design a message that endures for 50,000 or 100,000 years I want to talk to you Des about the Human Interference Task Force. You've come across them before, right? Yes, I have. I think they're brilliant. Um, From a kind of conceptual point of view, um, so the Human Interference Task Force was a group commissioned by the United States Department of Energy um, in the late 20th century to solve a problem to do with um, nuclear waste storage. So all these fission reactors in the US were producing nuclear waste which they couldn't use for anything and was incredibly unpleasant Um, and it takes hundreds of thousands of years to degrade Um, and so what were they going to do with it they were going to bury it uh, in these deep geological repositories but the problem is if you have a sign up saying 
nuclear waste keep out? If you consider the time span, 10,000 years ago, um, what language was everybody speaking like? Proto-Indo-European, um, which is not comprehensible to the humans of today. So why would the, the language of today be comprehensible to the humans of 10,000 years uh, if we make it that far, or 20,000 years in the future. Um, so the Human Interference Task Force was set up to... It's a fantastic name, isn't it? I've no idea why they're <laughs> called that. Um, was set up to try and solve this problem, to try and find ways of keep putting messages around these nuclear waste storage sites that would be intelligible to any human, regardless of um, how much of the linguistic context they shared with the humans of today. And they started this in the 80s, looking into this. But then in 1993, there was a report from the Sandia National Lab- Laboratory. And it recommended, essentially, that any message that was created to put in these places that would be a linguistic message, so it, it would be a written message as opposed to pictorial, would have to almost comprise of four levels of meaning and complexity increasing in complexity. So level one would be rudimentary information, something like something man-made is here you know this was created by humans and almost you can imagine the very act of putting a message down conveys that level number two would be cautionary information so you know something man-made is here and it is dangerous level three would be basic information almost going into the why when where who and how and if you remember learning languages at school well if you're Bethan learning languages at school that was the point where language starts to become quite complex mm. you know you're having to go into past tense present tense so that's quite complex to convey in a language that people may not speak and then level four would be highly complex information so it would be detailed written re- records schematics tables figures graphs and maps and you know maps arguably you could read but that's when you get into it's probably going to be impossible for people Mm. to understand that and then okay right let's say you you had a way of conveying these messages either linguistically or non-linguistically to future visitors to this kind of waste site that we don't want people to dig in because it's probably going to destroy humanity if they uncover it what what the, should the wording be? You know, what should it actually convey? And I'm going to read out this message just because I think it's, it's fantastic. And this is what the uh, Sandia report basically advised that, that we put on these places. So this place is a message and part of a system of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honour. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards the centre. The centre of danger is here, of a particular size and shape and below us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of danger is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. What a message. You've got a great story about that message, though. You saw someone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I saw... You, you guys know those, those like, live, love, laugh kind of quite tacky I signs. Think it's live, laugh, love. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I, I apologise if you love that sort of thing. But... Um, kind of cheesy with lots of different fonts and someone had done this message in that style and I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. Um, But it raises some really interesting questions, doesn't it? So it's like, 
all the monuments and you know if you think from the distant past you've got things like Stonehenge and the pyramids like these were clearly very important sites regardless of like whether the people who lived in that time would go there or not go there and we recognize them as kind of like central points for those cultures but if you want to communicate that you shouldn't go to a place in a very strong way to a culture a thousand years hence or ten thousand years hence that's a really complicated and you know uh, backwards message because if you put a strong message anywhere and then it's incomprehensible but the strength of it ma- is maintained so the magnitude of the pyramids is clear even if you have no idea what they are um, so the idea of constructing a strong high magnitude message that says leave this place alone it's not important yeah yeah almost you'd be like oh okay that's a really interesting plaque or feature on the landscape let's go and investigate yeah, it exactly, because humans yeah. are curious yeah. and what i love about it obviously they, they said you know we want to convey this that particular message i read out in a linguistic and non-linguistic way how do you actually do that in practice obviously you can write it down and one of the plans they put together was essentially it would be written in a hundred of the most used languages at the present in the hope that you know one or two of them would survive like a rosetta zone kind of situation and yeah, okay, you can kind of see that working. I mean, 10,000 years, that's probably a reasonable time scale. As Des said, we do understand Proto-Indo-European because of the very fact that modern languages are built on top of it. You know, we can almost work back and we may not be able to speak it fluently in that sense. I mean, we don't know how it was spoken, but we can understand word patterns and things. So a 10,000 year time scale, that's fine. But when you get to 50,000 years... And let's say there's a massive kind of catastrophe and human civilization collapses in the meantime. How are you going to do it without language? And they they propose like a series of plaques and they, they say what you would expect from something that was warning you about your nuclear radiation site. So it says danger. There's a big um, nuclear like waste uh, warning symbol on there as well. And we were looking at this and it's quite funny. There's two human faces and one of them is doing kind of the, the, the Edward Munch scream position. So I think arguably any human would be like that person's not very happy Mm -hmm. but the other one i think they look like they're squinting but you think they're grimacing i think they're dead you think they're dead i think they're dead yeah or very ill they look like troll face yeah they do look like troll face and you see even des and i talking about this in the present day where we understand all of the context around why this message is are like why what is that Mm. what is that yeah so if the comprehensibility is questionable now um that doesn't bode well. <laughs> for the future. <laughs> it does not bode well for the distant future. Not at all. And yeah. going back to your physical markers point, so they did suggest a number of different physical markers, and it was things like a landscape of thorns, a spike field, spikes bursting through a grid, menacing earth. I love this, menacing earthworks. It's kind of like those are exactly the things today we are drawn to. Yeah. Men- like menacing. Menacing is such a, a vague concept. Menacing earthworks. Like if you look at like the Aztec like temple cities that's pretty menacing they're pretty menacing I mean they were used for human sacrifice oh yeah they're, they're, <laughs> so they're pretty menacing but people like going there you know? it's a monumental landscape um, and we're attracted to that for yeah. whatever reason so the other thing they recommend is obviously they've talked about leaving a written message physical messages but a cultural memory and this one I find really interesting so they basically said you know one way of preserving this message that this is not a place of honor no good deed was commemorated here blah 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 is to instill in our current civilization this kind of idea that these places are not good and hope that that's passed down from generation to generation and they and this was quite funny they proposed the creation of an atomic priesthood 
right? I said that right, an atomic priesthood, a panel of experts comparable to the Catholic Church, which they said has preserved and authorised its message for 2,000 years. Didn't the Catholic Church, like, literally have, halfway through its history, a massive change in their doctrine where they decided, basically, we're going to change the nature of Christ, you know? Yeah, but the core message remains the same. And the core message of the um, Abrahamic faiths goes back, what, like, 3,000 years, 4,000 years? I've no idea. But fair, a fair bit. Yeah, yeah, a long time, but it's changed. You know what I mean? It's changed. Mm. Relying on that is so... It's not going to last. A cultural memory is mm. like Chinese whispers. It's going to change and change and change. Again, you know, the prehistoric cave paintings are cultural memory in some way. You know, they echo down through history, these kind of depictions of animals mm. and whatever, but we still can't understand them. And then finally... What a French author, Francoise Bastide, and Italian semitician Pablo Fabri proposed... Now, this one's a bit weird. They proposed that domestic cats be genetically engineered to change colour in the presence of radiation. And essentially, this, over time, would become significant and they would become like ray cats, radiation cats, and it would be reinforced, this idea, through fairy tales and myths and... The idea would be, you know, the myths and the fairy tales would say, if a cat turns, like, green or whatever, you should leave that place. Which, the only outcome I can see from that is basically the entire feline species gets wiped out because everyone becomes afraid of cats. But, you know, again... (laughs) It's a fantastic idea, isn't it? Like, it's an absolutely brilliant idea. It's just so flawed in so many ways. Like, it rests on the idea of preserving this idea that if a cat changes colour, you need to, you know leave that part of the country or whatever but that's probably not going to happen unless you dig up some radiation which is almost never going to happen so it's like it would be such a hypothetical situation that i find it very difficult to believe that it would be preserved also it wouldn't exist in isolation i think that's what they forgot like cats within especially european cultural memory have a very significant set of significances Hmm. as in you know they're tied to witchcraft occultism if you go back even further to like kind of Egyptian mysticism as well, and to overlay this on top of that, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Then maybe that would reinforce it, though. Maybe. Maybe. Do you think that's why they chose ray, ray cats? Uh, they probably just like cats, I don't know. Why didn't they choose dogs? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you know, dogs are going to do humans' biddings. Cats will just, like, be anywhere and everywhere. Mm. And I, I love the fact that, you know, um, it was basically a bunch of cultural theorists came up with this and I imagine mm. they went to the scientists and they were like right we've solved the problem all you need to do is genetically engineer <laughs> some cat it's going to be easy right yeah I assume that's going to be extremely difficult to do <laughs> I don't know maybe maybe it's not but In- who knows yeah. interestingly one of the members of this um, think tank was um, Stanislav Lem who um, was a Polish science fiction author but he wrote his most famous book which is one of the most uh, important 20th century science fiction books is called Solaris, and in this book, he talks about encountering an alien intelligence, um, which is basically totally incomprehensible. Like, after, you know, uh, 20 generations or whatever it is in the book of studying this this alien that they, they find, they just have absolutely no idea um, what it thinks or how, how, it, how it works or anything about it. So the fact that he's here trying to trying to bridge this gulf um, is quite is, is quite apposite, I think. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that brings me on nicely to think about communicating with non-humans 
and communicating with, I guess, aliens. And, you know, even if humanity doesn't survive, is there a way we can preserve our legacy and communicate with people or beings that are, you know, tens and thousands of millions of years, you know, potentially away from us Mm. in terms of kind of conventional space travel. And there have been kind of several attempts to, I guess, leave this legacy. And you're going to tell us a little bit about one of them. Well, I can tell you a little bit about a couple of them, to be perfectly honest. Um, The most famous one and the most sophisticated um, is the the golden record that went out on uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, uh, famously um, suggested and pushed and delivered by um, Carl Sagan and Annie Druin. So Carl Sagan had this uh, wonderful utopian idea to um, put a kind of message in a bottle on these uh, spacecraft, which would not, the, which wouldn't be the first, but they would have been um, the one of some of the first human-made objects to leave the solar system, and they would never come back. So they 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 hurtle off into the into the interstellar void, um, where they will remain for the rest of the lifetime of the universe, um, unless they're disturbed. Yeah, I think some of them they have worked out they're going to degrade in like ten million years, but you know mm, that's. Yeah. That's a long enough time you would hope to well, reach someone. I don't know. I don't know. Space is big. Space is big, and, t- and 10 million years isn't, isn't that long in, in the lifetime of a star, I suppose. But, um, yeah, so these, these this record has got um, greetings from all the different human cultures. It's got music from different human cultures. It's got... It's got whale songs. It's got the, the, <laughs> it's got the calls of the humpback whale on. So the way um, Carl Sagan describes this, it's got greetings from all the different human cultures and one non-human culture, which is the humpback whales. Um, which is a beautiful idea, like it's so 1970s, um, but it's a beautiful idea. And little do you know, they're probably going to be extinct within 100 years, so, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little downer there. <laughs> yeah. But there are, that's the most famous example, but there are others. Um, so Pioneer 10 and 11, um, which were the two um, probes launched before Voyager 1 and 2, uh, they also left the solar system. Uh, and they've got simpler messages on them, which is which is a plaque, which is a very famous image of a, a naked man and a naked woman standing in front um, of the silhouette of the spacecraft. Um, and then there's a kind of diagram which is supposed to show where Earth is in the cosmos. But it's like interpreting this diagram would be such a feat of extraterrestrial intelligence. Like, it, it, it shows the Earth location based on, I think it's bright radio sources, um, intergalactic radio sources. So you should be able to triangulate um, the position of the Earth, or the position of the solar system at the very least, by, by kind of comparing these radio sources to where you are, to where they says, it says it, they'll be on the black. But the diagram uh, requires like, you to understand this little thing that's like the changing state of the electron, and that's the time base for it. But they're assuming if a civilization is advanced enough to kind of pick up this probe, they're going to understand basic universal constants which is mathematics yeah they'll understand the constants but will they understand the symbolic language i think that's that's for me the key question like um the it idea that you can electron re- yeah it show- but what does an electron look like an electron is a um is a probability wave it's not a dot and it's like would they even understand that marks on a surface could represent concepts if they communicate only through like standing magnetic fields or something like that could they ever grasp that level of communication, I don't know. Well, that style of communication. It reminds me of Arrival. 
Yeah. You know, where it's kind of these these pictograms, but also noises as well. And they just have a completely different way of thinking about language. Mm. And again, I think that's interesting, even within a human context. If, if you've ever tried to learn Chinese or, a, again, a non-proto-Indo-European language, it, it is extremely different. You know, some of the fundamental basics that we take for granted are extremely different. Mm. So how, how are we going to expect, you know an alien culture to understand our own language. Mm. I do love the little pictures of the man and the woman. I think that's... Do you think they recognise that? I have no idea. That's the whole thing, isn't yeah, it? Like you just you have no idea of gauging how comprehensible something's going to be to um, a distantly remote culture, be that in space or in time. Um, there's a couple of other really interesting examples. Um, one that I really like is... Um, the what's it called the long now foundation oh yeah and they try because human civilization is what like eight thousand years old and humanity itself is what like two hundred thousand years old well, it depends i suppose how you measure it of yeah. course but but um fire goes back what a million years yeah so like some culture has existed for an unbelievably large amount of time i love that you think fire is culture that's a whole nother podcast topic but anyway yeah it is isn't on. it i'm not sure it's resilience though <laughs> But the Long Now Foundation wants to promote the idea that we should be thinking more on this sort of timescale. We shouldn't be thinking about a generation or a lifetime or a hundred years. You know, we think of like a century as basically like a big unit of time, you know, a big unit of time. Um, and perceptually to us, of course, it is. It's like, it's like the maximum limit for the amount that you'll ever experience, you know, to the, to the nearest decade or whatever. Um, but humanity itself goes on many hundreds of times that thousands of times that arguably and so if we start to construct our ideologies on longer timescales what's that going to mean for our decisions today and i think the long now foundation fundamentally is basically like an anti-nuclear uh, organization it's kind of where they came change. from yeah and climate change yeah, exactly so they're kind of trying to get us to think about um the the, the consequences of our decisions the consequences that our decisions might have in a thousand years or a hundred years or two thousand years or two hundred thousand years. Um, yeah. I think the, the final thing I'd probably be interested in talking about is the fact that I know we talked about the problems with conveying a message and how difficult that is, especially in different cultural and uh, species contexts and time contexts. But one of the things that's always struck me, and I studied history at university and I remember going into the archives and seeing documents that people from six, seven hundred years ago had produced. And these weren't, you know, they weren't um, government documents. They weren't really special in any way. They weren't produced by monks. You know, some of these were almost like uh, local courts writing down what happened. And it would be like Alice sold her cow to Tom for a sixpence. And this this is such a connection to someone from the past. And I do think you can tell a lot about someone from the language they use from almost the way they write and to see see those marks on paper is really special and it kind of got me thinking a little bit about my own kind of correspondence my own digital records because it is all digital now and for example in the past if you were purchasing or selling property that would be recorded on a manorial court roll which would be essentially a piece of vellum which lasts for a long time that's why we can read them now but now I'm probably going to do an electronic signature when I move house and the records will be kept on a server somewhere but they may fail as well 
And so, in a sense, kind of our digital world, have we moved to a more impermanent way of recording mm. and keeping our messages? Whereas, you know, we can we can read papyrus from Egypt from 4,000 years ago that admittedly it's been preserved in very good conditions and whatever, but we can still read it. We can still, still see the, the hand of the scribe from the Temple of Thebes who would have been, you know, not the highest person in society necessarily. But we've still got that. But what's going to be left of me? It's a very good question. It's like we produce so much digital information, like an overwhelming amount of digital information is stored daily about each of us. But how long is that going to endure for? Maybe forever? Maybe a few decades? I don't know. I think I just keep on thinking about when I was at uni and I had a laptop that died and I lost all my stuff. Mm. You know, is humanity going to have that moment where the uh, proverbial world laptop dies and we're all like, shit, we've got my <laughs> dissertation due in. Yeah, well, there's that scene in uh, the new Blade Runner film, isn't there, when they, they talk about how all of the electronic records were destroyed and they only have the paper records, which is like, seems like a peculiar thing for a science fiction film to do, but yeah, it's very believable that could happen. Maybe that's the future. Hmm. So to kind of recap our slightly winding, but hopefully interesting conversation, I think it's fair to say that messages can have permanence we definitely have examples from our own human history but it's extremely problematic a to interpret them as historians as people reading them in the present you know even art we gave the example of the cave paintings how do, how can we know for sure what they mean and how can we know that we're not applying our own cultural ideology to those pictures and it wasn't just a guy in a cave really bored because what else is there to do in the cave when you feel the mm. bison and it's late at night you don't want to head out you're going to draw around your hand right mm, maybe yeah maybe <laughs> And also we've talked about some of the reasons why we may want messages to be resilient and to endure, to warn, to protect future generations of our from our own mistakes. And then really it's about reaching beyond humanity. How would you design a message that was going to be read by something that mm. is non-human, potentially tens of millions of light years away? But we've tried and... I would love I would love to be a fly on the wall or a piece of space dust on the wall mm. when an alien picks one of them up and tries to uh, <laughs> decode it. Well, that's the dream, isn't it? That's the dream. Cool. Well, I hope you all really enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed being on the podcast for only the second time. Only the second time. You're on yeah. it every time as the editor. <laughs> Editor-in-chief. You wouldn't know. <laughs> well, thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. It's a bit of a different flavour from usual, but it was just a topic we were talking about and we were like, well, other people might be interested in this, you never know. So if you do like the podcast and you like this episode, please feel free to leave a rating and or a review. It just means more people get to hear about the podcast, what we're doing, and it also makes me really happy. It's like literally the equivalent of being given a shiny new puppy. That is how happy it makes me when I see that little star come up. So until next time, I will leave it there. I've been Beth and Vincent. Thank you so much. <laughs>